welcome to this spotlight on the United States, in which our expert colleagues will survey the key risk issues of operating in that country and describe the support that international SOS provides there. So if you are interested in US health and security risks, if you send staff there, if you have a current or future presence in some way, then you have come to the right webinar. We'll be speaking with three of our experts today. We'll start with Dr. Miles Druckmann, our medical director, Julian Morrow, our security director, and I'm pleased also to have John McMurray, our lead security analyst for North America. Now to set the scene, the US is a major focus for the clients of international SOS. In fact, it's often the highest business travel location for the ANZ clients that I support. We have enormous commercial activities that we're seeing there and opportunities for ANZ organizations amongst others. It's a large, diverse Anglophone market, a high growth rate, really high level of bilateral trade and FDI. And of course, the promise now of the Inflation Reduction Act. Historically, we've seen commercial activities really be confined to the coasts, but we're seeing more movement into the heartland, places like Texas, for example, really changing the exposure of organizations working in the US. But at the same time, and it may not surprise listeners, the US is our highest alerting subject on security alerts. Now, it's clearly not the most dangerous, but the frequency, variety and complexity of issues from crime to political violence to health infrastructure and natural disasters means that we watch the country closely. And so let's hear from our experts about what they're seeing more generally. Julian, let's start with you. Give us an overview, if you will, about the security risk environment across the US for inbound business travelers and overseas firms with assignees and local staff. Yeah, thanks, uh, thanks, James. So just a little bit of context about me, why I'm speaking about this as a, as a non-American, but I'm Australian, I've lived abroad for 20 years, I've held EMEA-wide, APAC-wide, Americas-wide, global roles, and managing large, diverse teams. But I'm coming to my, the end of my third year now in Philadelphia in this current role. I travelled to the US for the first time back in 2000. I've worked here on a four-month sojourn as a crisis and security consultant back in 2006, and I've travelled frequently over that entire period back and forth to the US. So I'm bringing the perspective of both a leisure travel, a business traveler, a short time as a term assignee, as well as a resident employee now. So that's factored into the, the, the topics that I selected. Each and every one of these bears enough complexity and, and substance to be able to have a full webinar in and of itself. So we're going to try and keep it snappy when we talk about each of our different subjects, likewise for Dr. Druckmann. But these six topics, not just from what I think are important for you, being like hopefully like you, um, someone from outside of the US looking in and being very interested in it, but also with the interaction with our clients, uh, significant interaction with our clients and where they ask us these types of questions and where we help them, but also from feedback from our International Security Advisory Board, which is International SOS team across the world made up of former CSOs and their equivalents from the public sector, including Coca-Cola, uh, so the Coca-Cola company, I should say, for Boeing, um, for United Airways, uh, for Sony, amongst many others. Uh, but also I had the pleasure of being at the Global Security Exchange in Dallas just recently where we participated and we presented on five different subjects, but also there was a lot of other subjects presented by peers and colleagues and competitors across the world. And I really picked up a lot that I think is important that we wanted to share with you in this uh, forum today. But I also wanted to call out that uh, rather than having an Australian talking about some, two of the key topics, crime and law and order and political violence and extremism, I'm absolutely delighted to have one of my members of my team here, John McMurray, 
who's the lead analyst for, for the US to talk about those particularly acute subjects, particularly when you're looking from the outside, looking in and through the lens uh, often of the media. Brilliant, Julian. And, and to you, Miles, what, what are we seeing overall in terms of the medical and health environment in, in a general sense? Yeah, thanks, James. And uh, we were all discussing uh, this topic of the U.S. Uh, as a you know travel risk destination, and I think this is one of the first times in, in many years that I've been been discussing you know different risk environments. So it is very apropos for us to do this because it is quite a, a challenging area. Um, just like Julian, I've I've lived and worked around the world. I spent five years actually in Beijing. And when I was back in Beijing, there was very little outward travel, you know, from China. Everyone was going into China. Now everyone from China is going into the U.S. or at least, you know, looking at uh, U.S. as a destination. So I think it's really very topical. And I think it's uh, a very, as we'll talk about, it's a very diverse uh, and uh, heterogeneous, you know, kind of uh, country. It's got multiple, you know, cultures within it, um, different styles of, of uh, practice. Uh, and also, it's get, it's struggling with some of the environmental challenges that you're likely seeing in the news, whether it's uh, wildfires uh, and air quality, um, extreme heat events. Uh, we're probably going to see, um, you know, cold uh, snaps as well this winter. Of course, a lot of the storms, uh, and we'll talk about some of the other events that are kind of unique to the U.S. environment. Uh, we are still seeing um, COVID. And what's unique about uh, that in the U.S. is that um, the U.S. does have a different kind of model for vaccinations. They're opening this up to everyone. We're seeing that in certain countries, it's much more focused on the high-risk groups. But in the U.S., uh, they've expanded this to everybody. And a lot of that, there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, but one of them is that uh, the US, U.S. healthcare system, though it is world-class, it doesn't have the same kind of surge capacity as some other countries have. So they're they're extra conservative about um, overwhelming their hospitals. So they're trying to get people protected as much as they can. And the other thing that I'll talk about coming out of COVID and very much tied to it uh, and linked to some of Julian's discussions around, you know, workplace violence is workplace stress. And this whole concept of burnout, uh, the U.S. has gone through, like everywhere in the world, a real trauma during COVID and coming out of COVID, there's been a lot of layoffs and 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 um, just, uh, and, and unrest, and we'll talk about that too. Uh, and that leads into the work environment. And so we'll talk about how companies are kind of managing that in the US. And then finally looking at um, with COVID too, companies are re-looking at their emergency action plans. And there's a lot of very unique things that the U.S. does that if you're running an operation in the U.S., you need to be aware of. So we'll, we'll flag those for you as we go through today as well. So back over to you, James. Well, very, very good. You mentioned there about the, the natural disaster, natural hazard risk source. So that seems a good place uh, to start. Uh, and, and I'd like to hear from you, Julian, and then Miles, about these the natural hazard uh, risk issues. So what patterns, locations, indeed severity, and, and the response capability of the state. Uh, in terms of reacting uh, and supporting uh, uh, organizations and their staff. Thanks, James. I mean, so what you can see here is a, is a slide here that's provided by a website that's provided by FEMA, which is the Natural Risk Index. It accounts for the frequency, severity, but you can see here it also is skewed, or the data it takes into consideration, the population density, which is why you see such significant shadings in the coastal areas on the east and west coast. It's okay as a planning tool, but it doesn't give you the, the full picture, really, what is the underlying 
in particular in the context that we want to establish now, which is that what we have seen in the past is no real predictor um, of what is the future. And if you think about the acceleration of some of the more significant impactful events and the frequency about how, of where they're happening in non-traditional locations within the, uh, the natural risk uh, mapping, that it's really important that organisations get their head around it and plan for it. Um, in particular, just being able to plan for the unexpected. Um, so in the short time I've been here, we've had to activate. So our office just outside of it's a place called Trevos, just outside of, um, of Philadelphia, is in the relatively moderate zone. But what I've seen in the short time I've been here as a resident, we have had significant number of impacts from severe weather, natural disasters, primarily severe weather, uh, which have required the, the uh, activation of our business continuity plans. And you know, in 2001, when there was a, a sort of spate of tornadoes outside of the traditional tornado alley, um, a, a tornado just about devastated uh, business directly across the road from us. And you know, and, and also the the um, around Fort Washington area where our regional medical director lives, where a number of houses are still condemned from where a uh, from where the, the tornado struck. All that being said, the key takeaway here is that storms. Um, and in particular storms, they're becoming more frequent. What would be considered a, a smaller storm in the tracks and the trajectories that it usually have been taking in the past, they're becoming more fearsome, more frequent, more impactful, but also don't lose sight of the more catastrophic disasters. They are also happening more frequently and not just in the traditional areas. And again, I've seen so many articles and so many bits of analysis over the course of the last three years that starts with, we haven't seen this in three generations, 80 years, et cetera. I mean, even the most, uh, one of the recent storms um, that struck the, the south coast of, of California, the last time they had recorded winds of that uh, severity were back in the, like, the mid 19th century. So really, really important from that perspective. I'll just quickly give you a quick uh, bit of the landscape on the left-hand side, going from left to right, you can see there the floods, I mean, barely in the rear view mirror, New York, uh, you know, not even a week ago, where you know severe um, weather impacted and flooded the city quite dramatically. Um, Texas freeze up in the top left there. Uh, again, 2001, Hurricane Idalia, 2023, um, struck a part of uh, of, of the, the Panhandle that you know just was completely unprepared and hadn't been hit again in like three or four generations, according to the mayor. The tornado outbreak in 2021, that's just one example of a, of a warehouse that was ripped to pieces. Uh, unfortunately, five people lost their lives in that, in that disaster. Hurricane Ida, um, going back to 2022, where there was such severe flooding, um, the hospital infrastructure, and I know Miles will touch on that now, um, couldn't, couldn't uh, keep itself uh, afloat because of the loss of power. Wildfires and floods, I'm very familiar with that as an Australian, and like many people on this call, where the conditions that uh, precipitate fires, uh, you know, baking droughts and so on, also leave the, you know, the environment ripe for, for flooding once the once the rains come, and we've seen that pretty consistently in Northern California. And and last on the right there, the Maui wildfire that destroyed uh, Lahaina um, very recently. I think that sort of speaks to your last point, um, not a reflection or a criticism at all of the infrastructure and capabilities of, of US emergency services, far from it, but they often become overwhelmed just with the sheer scale of the things that are occurring and how much capacity can you just have sitting on the bench and also the fact that they're providing support all over the world. 
um, in addition to having to do it in, in their own country. And you know, understanding what does it mean, when does FEMA deploy, what assets do they have? There has to be a real partnership between the private and public sector and not just be in a reliance and think that uh, the government's going to come and, and, and save us every time there's one of these issues. So again, this is all you know, hypothetical. I can show you a whole bunch of screenshots and, and images. Um, but really, we have been tracking this for a long time. And in July, International SOS issued its highest number of climate change related client advisories in its history of tracking this data for over 30 years. So in a year and year comparison of our US natural disaster reporting, we had 16% increase um, uh, year and year, but also a six fold increase in special advisories relating to natural disaster risks. And of course, risk, you can't say that there is a, you know, an absolute correlation or causation. There is a correlation, not causation. Because you know, of course, we can be also you know modifying our uh, our own reporting thresholds, etc. But it is a pretty it's, it's it's very significant, and it's something that I think you inherently know. And this is some data that helps uh, to back that point up. Well, let's let's hear from from Miles as well about some of these additional environmental stresses and and hazards that are affecting staff. Miles. Yeah. Look, I think uh, you know. Uh, Julian kind of laid it out very nicely there. It's it it is a challenging environment, and we know that uh, you know in Australia they had a very bad wildfire season. We know that there's peat burning in Indonesia that floats to Singapore every year. Um, so uh, you know parts of Asia are well aware of these issues, um, but they can be very dramatic. And um, one in particular is the air quality issue. So even though you may be literally thousands of miles away from fires. Um, air quality beca can become untenable and cause some significant health effects. And we saw that uh, on the east coast of the U.S. this year, where there were massive wildfires in the north of Canada, thousands of miles away, and uh, the eastern seaboard was was um, basically orange. Uh, and um, you know, we had to really bring out our masks again to protect ourselves from the short-term health effects of uh, of these air quality issues. So this is going to become more and more of a theme as uh, more research comes out around air quality and its impact on health. And you can see 7 million people dying each year. Um, the other thing to be aware of, too, is that the way uh, the U.S. measures air quality is different potentially from your home country. So what your you might be considered as um, you know unhealthy conditions could be different based on your own country scoring systems. You can see the U.S. versus China there as an example. Um, you also see that in, in Canada, for example, they have a slightly different scoring system. So um, comparing apples to apples, um, it's important to know kind of what the indexes are um, and how it compares uh, when you get uh, into the U.S. Um, so air quality, a big issue. Uh, and we also saw this summer uh, in the U.S. Uh, major um, heat events. We're still uh, having, you know, some uh, hot, hot weather in places. And you know when you've got a community that's well protected or that's well very familiar with with uh, heat, they they respond much better. You have communities that are not uh, acclimatized to significant heat outbreaks can be very significant. So heat safety programs. I'm not going to go through all the elements here today, but I wanted to uh, flag these for you because if you don't have a heat safety program for your U.S. staff, it's something that's becoming um, a standard that's required in many jurisdictions, uh, particularly if you obviously if you have workers that are outside every day. Um, but even just getting to and from work, um, air quality, heat uh, can be very, very impactful and having a good system in place is is really business critical in it from a U.S. context. 
Thanks, thanks, Miles, for sharing. And, and let's let's pivot now a little bit into talking about the uh, the, the the risks and, and the the obligations on employers in terms of their duty of care for diverse uh, cohorts of of workers. Uh, and so let's let's go to you, Julian, first to hear about what are we seeing in terms of risks to the LGBTIQ plus community uh, around the United States and some of the variations in protections. Thanks, James. So uh, just again, a bit of context. So we at the GSX in Dallas just recently, we were privileged to, uh, to, to host a, a session about the risks to the LGBTQ plus community. And uh, was that one of our employees was, was a member of that panel and we were we had some esteemed members, including one of the few openly gay chief security officers of one of the biggest companies in the world who was on that panel. And I must admit to being, I thought I was reasonably well uh, informed on this subject and uh, much to my chagrin, I was uh, I found after that presentation and in the context of putting it together with the, with the panel, that there was a lot to learn. Um, and I think the, the panel really focused on, on, on things that are relevant to this audience. And that is that even in locations that we typically discuss as low risk environments, the LGBTQ plus community faces a lot of risks, uh, all the way from verbal harassment to violent assault, denial of medical care, due to their gender identity and or sexual orientation. Um, and then you'll hear you know, soon from, from John, but in an increasingly ideological complex landscape, the security managers, organisations in general, must ensure that their LGBTQ plus employees, not just their travellers, are protected for domestic, while they're domestically working, as well as when they're travelling interstate uh, and, and of course abroad. There are many statistics. Um, I've just got a couple up on the screen. I will quickly run through them because I think they're quite impactful. So according to a 2022 study conducted by Booking.com, 82% of LGBTQ plus travellers reported that they'd had less than a less than welcoming or uncomfortable experience while travelling. 60% say that being a part of the community impacts the decisions they make while planning. As of June 2023, there are 64 countries in the world, 32 in Africa, 20 in Asia, and six in the Americas, and six in Oceania that criminalise private, consensual, homosexual acts. And I think the last point, according to a study by the Williams Institute at UCLA School of Law, the LGBTQ plus individuals in the US are nearly four times more likely to experience violent victimisation than non-LGBTQ plus individuals. And I think one of the, what underscores this is uh, OSAC, uh, which I'm sure you're all familiar with. Uh, the first time they started a new common interest group was this year, and that was for LGBTQ plus safety. The last one was women in security 14 years ago. So it really underscores how important this is in the US, how important it is to the public and private sector collaboration and how important it is for organisations. On the map on the right hand side there, you can see that the American Civil Liberties Union is tracking 496 anti-LGBTQ plus bills in the US. That map is live. I took a snapshot of it live yesterday. And you can see underneath there about the travel ban that was issued by Canada. There is a real issue um, sometimes Organisations may not see it quite as much, but it is absolutely an issue that your employees, whether they be LGBTQ plus or not, are very much interested in. Uh, it's important to know that the, you know, the medical and security risks uh, that are unique to the LGBTQ plus population, are, you know, categorised in locations that are categorised as low risk. There is a requirement to really delve in on the research, and it's a, it's a common theme throughout. Dr. Truckman, Miles talked about it earlier in that the US, while it's contiguous and you know it's, it's an English language uh, country, it is 50 states and they are very significantly different, 
even if there are a lot of similarities, cult similarities culturally, there are really significant differences around legislation, both at the state level, municipality, city, uh, that need, and, and, and even social attitudes, obviously, um, depending on which part of the country and even sometimes which parts of the state um, in which you are based or travelling to. So you really need to think about a couple of key takeaways, which is you must provide information to your LGBTQ plus employees, but not just to them, but also to their colleagues to know how to handle travel in these locations that doesn't expose their colleague to certain risks. It's also important that you provide information that can be anonymously accessed because there are a lot of people that either aren't out to their colleagues at work or their managers at work, um, or maybe not even at all, but still want to understand the risks. And so, uh, and then lastly, to be able to provide them the ability to turn that information into very specific information based on their personal circumstances and of course their itinerary, their profile, the activities that they're intending to perform, the locations in which they're going to and so on. I was just going to dive in on one of the other areas. I mean, most organisations, this is something that is, you know, extremely top of mind for chief security officers. It is on every organisation's enterprise risk management uh, list of the things that are most uh, problematic and most, you know, and, and troublesome and probably one of the biggest investment areas for organisations globally. It is particularly acute in the US. Um, and that is because partly uh, because there's a bit of a convergence between, you know, the wealth um, the innovation, the amazing things that have happened in the business and private, public and private sector in the US as, as leaders of the world in those areas um, and cutting edge uh, research, et cetera. But it's also, there's a bit of a convergence because a lot of the, uh, uh, the actors, uh, the bad actors in this space uh, happen to be in locations where they see the US as adversaries. And so there's a bit of an overlay, overlay there of criminality with, um, an area of ideological um, uh, convergence. So I, I, mean, I attended just to, to that point. I briefed. I attended a briefing um, with the special agent in charge from the FBI from one of the regional teams, where he stated that their their mapping of where most of the bad actors are is that they are still in Russia. It's not crystal clear about what the specific breakdown is by, by driven by criminality versus the state. Um, and versus ideological reasons, but there is a bit of an overlay to contribute, it's a contributor of, of all three uh, connecting and converging. The, the graph on the right is quite interesting, I think, because this is complaints and losses lodged in the US. It does relate to incidents across the world, but it really, if you are operating and, and registered and, and working in the US, that is something that you would need to understand that there is risk to your operation, not just in the US, but potentially globally, and you need to be across that. But I think one of the highlights takeaway there is that there, while there was a 5% reduction year on year from reported incidents, and again, worth noting that the FBI assesses that it's about 25% underreported. So, you know, the accuracy there is a little bit, you know, you take it with a pinch of salt. But the, the really key aspect there is that there's been a 50% increase in losses during that same period year on year. Uh, so very significant and something that you need to understand. And back to that common theme we talked about across all of these different themes, which is about there is when doing business in the US, there's a really significant requirement to understand your reporting obligations at federal, state, even in some cases industry um, and sometimes city, and not just where you have bricks and mortar operations, but where you have clients and where you are processing data for residents of a particular state. You need to understand all of these complexities. 
it is a lot of work to be able to be good at that, but you, you don't want to be waiting to an instant, for an incident to occur before you actually have a handle on all of those things. Julie, really interesting. Thanks for, thanks for sharing. Well, let's, let's bring in John now, and with thanks to, to Sally and, and Kate who asked really pertinent questions before the webinar. So, John, let's hear from you about what sorts of crime and law and order issues we're seeing at the moment in terms of trends and targets and firearm proliferation, all the other issues that, that we think our, our listeners are really interested in. Over to you, John. So the first thing to really understand about the crime landscape in the US is it's really heavily dependent on where exactly you are in the United States. The most significant crime uh, from a risk standpoint tends to come in trouble spots in urban areas. And in these locations, uh, located in many major cities, we see a lot of crime that's really driven by organized crime, gang violence, and in the areas, this, this is really where we see some of the most, uh, some of the highest rates of particularly violent crime. Now, overall, the United States has actually seen a bit of a mixed bag when it comes to crime rates. But for property crimes, we've actually, over the past couple of years, uh, over the past year or so, seen a drop in, in property crimes. And we've seen something similar with homicides as well. And this follows a, um, this follows a period of increased crime that peaked in about 2019, 2020, but over the past two years, we've seen this decline. Now, how now why exactly this has been happening is a matter of some debate, but one of the main, one of the main thoughts on this is that because, because the world has kind of returned back to normal and we've seen a reduction in COVID lockdown measures, we've seen a reopening of society, we're starting to see that associated drop in criminal activity. And associated this with this is an opening of what's often called third spaces. So these are areas outside of the home, school, workplace, where youth, people who might be vulnerable to getting involved with organized criminal activity, this is a place where they can be and spend time without necessarily getting sucked into the same kind of gang violence that Unfortunately, we'd seen during the pandemic when these options just weren't available. Also, despite recent calls to defund the police and things like that, uh, we've actually seen most police agencies getting more money over the past couple of years from the government, especially associated with COVID response legislation. Now, one area, unfortunately, that we have seen a growth in uh, violence-wise and in frequency also is mass shootings. And before going too far into this, I just kind of want to define our terms a bit. So we at ISOS use the same definition that the US federal government uses, where, um, where a mass shooting is, is uh, defined as any shooting where four or more people, not including the shooter, are injured. And unfortunately, we've seen an increase uh, from uh, from about the past decade, almost a year-on-year -year increase in the number of mass shootings. And right now, the U.S. is at about 530 mass shootings, depending on how you count the numbers. And if the current trends hold, it looks like we're going to see somewhere around probably 650 shootings, which is above 647 from last year, but below the 690, which is the record from 2021. And notably, we're seeing more and more, uh, we're seeing these shootings really increase in frequency pretty dramatically. When you take a look at 2021, that was double the number of mass shootings that we saw in uh, 2018. 
Now, despite now, despite this, and despite all the coverage these mass shootings tend to get, it's worth remembering that only about six percent of people who are injured in uh, firearms in fire in shootings in the United States are victims of mass shootings. Now, also, unfortunately, mass shootings we tend to see them really all over the country, and in the past decade, the only state that hasn't seen a mass shooting is actually Hawaii. And we see the majority of these types of shootings in states that already have high risk of homicide and other forms of violent crime. And this is likely associated with a number of cities in these states that have some of the highest murder rates in the United States. And related, of course, to, um, to mass shootings is the proliferation of guns in the US. There are about 393 million privately held firearms in the U.S., so that works out to be about 120 guns for every 10 Americans. So 32% of Americans own a gun, and around 40% of households have a gun in it. And one of the things that separates the U.S. from a lot of other countries is that gun rights are enshrined in the Constitution, and also guns carry a really significant kind of social, political, and historical weight to them. And in areas with high gun, with particularly high gun ownership, it's not common to see, or it's not uncommon to see people um, with pistols just kind of going about, caring about, their daily, uh, caring about their daily lives. That being said, the laws and the culture for guns really differ, and it differs in uh, pretty, in, pretty intense ways based off of geography. So in terms, of, um, in terms of purchases uh, of guns, we've seen an increase over the past decade, and it's been a pretty steady year-on-year -year increase. That being said, there are, a couple, there are a couple outliers to this information. First off, we tend to see increase, uh, increases in gun purchases in the years during, uh, in election years. There's some concern among some folks, the, the, government, the government might put in place legislation that restricts people's access to firearms. Also, we saw a really rapid spike in gun purchases uh, right, right around 2020 and 2021, and that's likely associated with COVID-19 and the George Floyd protests. We've seen a bit of a drop this past year, but still the rates of gun purchases in, 2019, in 2020 too were higher than what we saw in 2019. And additionally, we've seen some further uh, security-related concerns with firearms. There are many, there's a lot of instances of smuggling between states with more permissive rules, uh, with, uh, from states with less permissive rules to more permissive rules. We've also seen an influx in mechanisms that allow people to uh, convert semi-auto firearms to fully auto firearms. And we've also seen the rise of ghost guns. These are guns that don't have the federally mandated serial number, which is required for the sale of all firearms. John, thanks for those really interesting observations. And I, I didn't know about that, that periodic increase in purchasing around electoral uh, events. But um, whilst we're on that theme, let's, let's, let's stay with you and talk about political violence uh, and extremism and hear from your your, your reporting about current issues and trends and themes and, uh, and what we're seeing on, on, the, uh, on, the, on the platform. So political violence is another security concern that we've seen really increase over the past couple of years. And we've seen this recent, most recent spike really beginning in 2016. And the most common types of political violence really breaks into two categories. 
first is individual kind of isolated attacks. So these are instances, uh, one of the most, one of the most um, significant of the most recent events was last year, where the husband of um, the prominent legislator, Nancy Pelosi, was attacked uh, by, a, by, a, uh, by a person who was really motivated by far-right and particularly conspiratorial worldviews. And these individual attacks, they might not necessarily make the international news or even the national news, but we see a, we see a significant number of these happening uh, all over the country. Second type of political violence that we see often, and admittedly, we've seen less of this post, uh, post the George Floyd demonstrations, but this is violence between, uh, between activists who gather at often at times opposing rallies. And we've, been, we've seen instances where protesters, sometimes armed, will, will form kind of a, a, a group to face off against opposing protesters. This can also happen around uh, particularly sensitive events. And what we tend to see there are really isolated clashes between these rival activists and occasionally between the activists and security forces and police in the US as well. And looking forward, 2024 unfortunately has a number of flashpoints which could really change the political violence uh, environment in the United States. And particularly, we're looking at the ongoing um, presidential not, uh, election process, and that's gonna run throughout all of next year. We're also looking at the uh, various Trump indictments. And those are going to be going to trial beginning uh, in uh, early next year. And finally, there's also the question of how the uh, US government, the US House's potential impeachment processes into current President uh, Biden, how that might relate to uh, political violence going forward. John, thanks for identifying those really important themes and grievances and emergent behaviors that, that we should be watching in our risk management plans. Um, but let's let's go back to, to Julian and then Miles to hear a little bit more about how issues like crime and polarization and so on are affecting the workplace and, and how organizations are uh, you know, early warning and, and intervening in these issues. So over to you, Julian, and, and then Miles. Right. Thanks. Thanks, James. I mean, again, it's, I don't want it to seem that the segue into this particular point is directly related to the previous two topics. Um, it's not, but of course it all contributes. Like the polarization of politics certainly makes the likelihood of, of, of certain types of confrontation between even, you know, colleagues in the workplace more likely than, than possibly not in the past. Um, but one of the things I wanted to touch on here is I think there's a, a conflation between workplace violence and mental illness, but also active shooter, which which they, they shouldn't be. Um, and in real, if you can see there, the definition OSHA, so the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, OSHA, their definition of what workplace violence is, you can see that it's a very large, all-encompassing and everything from the threat of all the way through to things like um, you know, uh, murders and so on that can happen in the workplace uh, and violent acts. But the, the thing that is, is really important is to note that there are roughly 2 million victims of workplace violence each year that are actually reported to OSHA and there is specific reporting requirements for to OSHA, but they estimate that it's uh, at least 20% underreported, a bit like what I was saying before, the 25% underreported for cyber uh, incidents. So, if you think about that and then extrapolate, it's just absolutely incredible. 
I won't go and read out all of these examples, but they are good examples of all the different things that you as an employer, either with operations in the US and, and elsewhere as well, but in the US uh, it, has, it has different connotations for some of the reasons that we, we talked about earlier with the proliferation of weapons and so on. Um, but it is really important to understand that organisations can do a lot, right? So from something that can start out as being relatively bad behaviour that could, through a number of periods of time, um, turn into something that is far more impactful, there are a lot of opportunities for employees, for managers, for HR, to be able to intervene and actually help steer it into a much more positive outcome. And I, so I can't uh, stress it enough, Work like, and in the interest of time, I need to get handed back over to, to Miles. But it is really important that organisations take this particular aspect seriously, and they can take some really practical, relatively straightforward, and pretty quick measures to understand what they have against what you can see there on as a best practice model that we've designed around workplace violence and prevention um, to try and make some quick wins. Uh, you know, if you're already operating here, or if you're intending to operate here. Thanks. Over to you, Miles. Yeah, Julian, I, I agree. I mean, I think having a plan is is uh, you know is something you have to have uh, for the U.S. market. Um, but I think you know that's the 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 incident is the pointy end of the stick. And I think what a lot of organizations are working at now, um, as we go to the next slide, is is really focusing on um, you know the implications to um, mental health, as you said. And, you know, this is a it's a combination of, you know, the U.S. environment. We've just coming out of COVID. Um, of course, not U.S. is not alone. I mean, everyone in the world has been kind of very stressed over the last number of years for multiple reasons because of COVID. Um, but adding to that in the U.S. market, there's been a fair bit of, um, you know, layoffs in the in the workplace, uh, interest rates rising, stress and demands, um, people, you know, sorting out and they come back to the workplace working from home. So there's a lot of uncertainty, and this leads to burnout. And burnout is something that I think uh, is not um, uh, unique to the US uh, at all, but while organizations are focusing on mental health and having you know, EAP providers and counselors ready, um, they're also understanding that burnout, if you go to the next slide, is actually 100% uh, work-related. And it is now actually a clinical diagnosis, but basically it is specifically and only related to workplace stress. So when you get rid of the stress in the workplace, guess what? The symptoms go away. And um, whether you know it's feelings of exhaustion, feeling negative about your career, um, loss of productivity. So all of these features are things that companies in the U.S. are now very much focusing on and really getting at the root cause, the root cause analysis of this and trying to get their employees in the sweet spot, um, not too relaxed that they're bored, but of course not down the other side where they're, um, it's affecting their health, they're exhausted, they're not performing. You want that right sweet spot, the optimal performance in the middle, very much like you see in your Stodd's law there. Um, and if you go to the next slide, you know, really what the focus here is how can you get a very resilient workforce. Um, one thing in the U.S. market, um, healthcare, as you know, is uh, not universal. It is not. Um, it's it's a private system. Uh, companies fund healthcare typically of their employees, and therefore there's a big focus on managing um, the health of their employees to the maximum so that they can be the most productive. So it's a win-win for the employee. 
but they're also focusing not just on the medical services they're offering their employees, but how can they actually stop um, causing more stress in the workplace themselves. So a manager, as an example, just came out, uh, this research just came out that your manager in the U.S. has as much impact on the employee's mental health as their partner or spouse. So really your boss um, in the U.S. context is, is really uh, instrumental in the overall stress that the employees face and training those managers so that they can reduce the stress, um, improving the processes so that people are not working uh, inefficiently in ways that cause more stress and really flipping it from a mental health issue into a positive, improving resilience productivity issue. And there's a concept of HERO, uh, which is a longstanding you know, psychological um, construct, but really focusing on employees' the ability to hope for the future, how efficient they are, how resilient they are, and their optimism. All of those things lead to a very productive workforce. And so I think as companies are moving out of COVID, they're refocusing on how can we try to um, create a more resilient uh, and productive uh, workforce. And then the last topic uh, um, we'll discuss today is around the emergency response. And again, COVID has, um, is waning. Um, and what organizations are now doing is reviewing a lot of the work that they were doing before, was, which was around emergency response planning. And just a snapshot around the world of the requirements that um, have national uh, legislation. This is just an example for first aid type of activities. But state also has very, the US states have specific requirements. So you need to understand that. And guess what? Even city and county levels um, have unique requirements. So in California, for example, this is just a snapshot of four counties and cities in, in the um, Southern California and nor actually all of Northern California too area where wildfire plans, very specific and unique to those counties, have to be put in place. So if you do have an operations in the U.S., knowing, understanding the national, the state, and the local uh, regulations is very important. And I think a lot of co uh, governments are, are refocusing from COVID, from all these natural disasters that are happening, and trying to put more um, you know, responsibility on the um, private sector to be able to support their own um, their own um, buildings and assets, uh, and I think that that's something that you're going to see. So if you're from a, a country where you've got one national plan and everyone follows it, um, the U.S. as I say is a patchwork and it does require a lot of unique local investigation. Really, really interesting, Miles, to hear about all of those uh, obligations on on risk management professionals. But let's also hear. Uh, from Julian as well, what we're seeing organizations doing in terms of their risk management and response and so on. Yeah, thanks, Jane. The, the, um, there's so much that risk managers are doing in their organizations. I, I mean, I couldn't barely touch on it in, in five minutes, but I will talk about a couple of things that I am aware of because we are involved with them um, in, in, in trying to, to, to look at how we can improve uh, their, uh, their risk management practices based on some of our, our knowledge and experience. Uh, starting out with really re reviewing policies, programs, practices, procedures in a couple of key areas. I mean, a lot of them, but we're really focusing on travel risk management, uh, particularly with the ISO 31030, which we were, you know, parts uh, in creating. 
um, understanding, helping organisations, and it feeds back into a whole range of things we talked about, about doing business in the US, about the differences between states, but also for different populations and profiles. We talked about LGBTQ+, but that is not the only underrepresented um, group within employees uh, within the US that need to be have specific consideration. Um, likewise, workplace violence. I mean, I, again, for a lot of organisations, they're wrestling with um, the very urgent and necessary things like making sure they provide training for active shooter and, and, and of course we have that in our um, library of, uh, of trainings. But there's a lot more around how do you make sure in the preparation stage that you are, have the managers um, and leaders in HR, in, in the people that make up the threat assessment team in, in legal and security and HR know their roles uh, and get specific training in that space. But also really simple things like just what policies and procedures do you have? There's a real misunderstanding around, oh, we have a zero tolerance uh, policy for workplace violence, which has the unintended consequence of um, having employees too scared to report the potential early stages of bad behaviour because they're fearful of what might happen either to their colleague who might get fired because of the zero tolerance or because they might there might be repercussions. So very simple things like that. Uh, likewise, organisations can make some pretty simple and very quick rapid changes even to the way they treat severances, uh, where, they, where they separate with employees, um, how they can have a really significant positive impact. Looking at executive protection programs and all the reasons for the reasons we, we talked about, particularly around what John was talking about earlier, making sure that there's also a digital component of that, cyber component of that, the executive protection programs, and helping them understand um, how that can be done better and in fact sometimes save money. There are some tax breaks, for example, in the provision if you are providing executive protection and security 24-7 for certain populations within your organisation. Contingency planning, like actually writing specific plans, so going through the review process and where there are gaps, helping organisations if they need it to actually write specific plans, but really testing those plans and not just on the operational and, and tactical level, uh, which are super important through desktop uh, you know, exercises, but also for organisations to really think about some of the topics we've touched on here can end your organisation. So really understanding and making sure that the people are responsible for crisis management, the things that could end an organisation are properly planned for and tested and simulated exercises around some of these subjects. So linking in some of the specific contingencies, operational plans at the operational level of your organisation and linking that in and, and actually exercising both of those organisations together, concurrently separating separately so they get trained and then bring them together to do it. Um, we're doing a lot around the LGBTQ plus ourselves uh, and helping organisations do that. Uh, as you would have seen from an earlier slide, a lot of our content, all of, almost all of our country guides now have LGBTQ plus, plus sections. And of course, uh, we're increasingly making sure that our teams are aware um, and can do the research. The point is you can't know everything about these things. The landscape, even just in the US alone, changes so frequently. And you saw my map around the different, over 490 uh, pieces of legislation. Impossible to stay on that all the time, but it's a tool that we can help managers to be able to provide that out of organisation advice to, to their, their team members if they are travelling specific to their profile and so on. We're seeing a lot around incident support services where they really leverage our, our resilient structures. Right? We, we run 27 assistance centres 24-7 around the world um, with languages and other things, but mostly around case management, communication systems, and we can do some of the things that it's really difficult for organisations that don't have GSOCs 
or even if they do have GSOCs, that they don't want to put this particular function into in-house around uh, you know, a variety of different types and purposes from health and safety, industry and operations, security, threat reporting, whistleblower, actual or suspic uh, suspected acts, cyber attacks, media reputation, right? where there is a specific, very practical, if this happens, this is how it's activated and we can do this for you. So we're seeing a lot of these areas around how, what, the way we have structured and our expertise, how we can help fill some of the many things that the, that the risk manager is working on. Well, thank you, Julian. These have been some incredibly diverse themes and issues. Uh, and if you'd like to hear any more about any of these or others which we have not discussed, do get in touch via your international SOS point of contact or via the links that we send out after this session. Our thanks to Julian, to Miles and to John for sharing their insights and their time. And with that, thank you very much and goodbye.